Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. As we remember the truth of the gospel this Christmas season, we are studying Emmanuel, the God who is with us. For more information, go to our website at EdenWorshipCenter.com. For the rest of us this morning, we're going to be continuing on in, in our series uh, called Emmanuel, God with us. And, and in the last two weeks, we've talked about uh, the promise of Emmanuel, the, the, the prophecies that came thousands of years before Jesus Christ was born, prophesying that, that Emmanuel was to come, God with us. And, and we, we kind of talked about what are these promises wrapped up in the coming of Jesus. And then last week, uh, Dad took us through the coming of Emmanuel. The, the, or I guess Matt preached last week. Is that right? I don't even know anymore. Somebody preached. I'm not saying that was forgettable. No, it was. That was an awesome... If, if you have missed this series, I would encourage you... Um, last week, Matt, Matt um, preached an outstanding message. I would really encourage you to go listen to that. Uh, this is the one and only compliment he gets from me. But I uh, would encourage you. So today we're going to be talking about the kingdom of Emmanuel. I am super excited uh, to preach this message. I was really excited when we sat down and worked through uh, the four messages we were going to preach in this sermon series. Uh, and, then, and then to to see that, that I would be assigned to preach on the kingdom of Emmanuel. I've been really excited about that. I've been really blessed and encouraged as I prepared for this message. And my big hope for us this morning is that we would leave here today uh, more optimistic than we came in, especially given the events that have gone on around us. Matt shared about uh, what happened. Most of you probably had heard about that, about the two police officers in New York City being killed. There's this giant... Uh, divide in our nation that we've been seeing in all kinds of ways over the last couple weeks. And and then we've got all these other issues that are going on, all kinds of issues within the church where there's this pressure for the church to sort of bow its knee to the will of the people. When the people said, this is what marriage should be, this is what you should call sin. In fact, we don't want you to talk about that anymore. There's been this tremendous pressure. We might have a tendency to think that the church of Jesus Christ is losing is fighting a losing battle. So my big hope this morning is that we would leave here uh, knowing that, that that is far from true. That the church of Jesus Christ is not fighting a losing battle. And that as we go into this Christmas holiday this week, that, that we would celebrate it like Christians. So those are my big goals this morning as we talk about the kingdom of Emmanuel. But we talk about the kingdom of Emmanuel, the kingdom of God. This is a, a, something that the Bible talks about constantly from start to finish. There is, there is this ongoing reference to the kingdom of God. In fact, in the Bible, when we talk about the gospel and how important the gospel is and, and how we hold on to the gospel, the Bible frequently calls the, the gospel the gospel of the kingdom. It's not just some good news we've got. It's the good news of the kingdom. Gospel means good news. And as Christians, we don't just have good news. We have the good news of the kingdom. This is the message of the Bible. And so when Jesus enters into his ministry, we see this in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a little different angle altogether as one of the gospels. But, But in these three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus enters into public ministry, they all tell us the same thing. They all sort of give us a a summary statement of Jesus's message. This isn't the only thing that Jesus preached, but this sums up the message of Jesus. And it says that that Jesus came on the scene and he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus's message is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In, In the book of Acts, where we read of the spread of the church and how Christianity started with this small handful of people and and turned into this explosive, world-changing religion. The last words in the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, it says, He, this is talking about Paul, He lived lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. And so the message of the New Testament is the message of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that has, has come on the scene that Jesus pronounced. The, the, the epistles kind of talk to us about how do we live in light of the fact that the kingdom has come. How do we live as citizens of that kingdom. And, 
And, and so the New Testament is filled with this kingdom language, but the Old Testament is filled with a looking forward to the kingdom of God, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. That's why we call Jesus, Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It means he's the Messiah, the one that they're waiting for. And there was this expectation that when this person comes, when the Messiah comes, he'll bring the kingdom of God with him. And so this morning, if you open up to Isaiah 9, I want to go to a very familiar passage. Just read a couple of verses. Let's stand up together. Very well-known passage. Isaiah wrote this 600 years before the birth of Jesus. So this is one of those prophecies about the coming Messiah, about Emmanuel, God with us. So Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for Jesus' pronouncement that the time has come, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would speak to your church this morning. You would speak to to us, the citizens of the kingdom of God. Lord, that that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, God, that, that we would be filled with the joy and the hope that comes from being your sons and your daughters. Pray, God, for myself as I preach, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So this is a very familiar passage. A very familiar passage. And and there's a problem with familiar passages. They're familiar for a reason. It's because they're amazing. And they're great, and they're inspiring, and they're so packed with truth. But one of the problems that comes with familiar passages, especially ones like this, Christmas passages, is we just kind of blow right past them. We don't actually catch what's being said. It's like this with Christmas music. We're, we're used to Christmas music, and we're declaring these incredible, glorious, hope-filled statements about the kingdom of God and the coming of Christ, and it sort of blows right past us. We, we might sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and follow it up with jolly old St. Nicholas, and we don't see much of a difference there. By the way, St. Nicholas is a pretty cool guy. I was hoping Matt would share this. I don't have time to share it, but I'm going to anyway. St. Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea in like 325 AD. He was a Christian bishop, and there was a guy teaching at that time that was at the Council of Nicaea named Arius, who was teaching a a, a heretical message that Jesus was something less than co-equal with God the Father. And St. Nicholas silenced him by not only arguing against what he said, but by punching him in the face. (laughs) That's Santa Claus! Yeah! Yes! He was temporarily defrocked as a bishop for that, but the people loved him so much that they reinstated him. That's Santa. You should never talk bad about Santa. He's awesome. That has nothing at all to do with this message. <laughs> so this passage that, that sort of can fly right over our head, it's so full of truth. In fact, these two verses are so full of truth that we couldn't possibly cover everything in one sermon. A couple years ago, our Christmas series was just these four titles uh, for Jesus, four, four separate sermons, and we still didn't cover all the truth that's there. But today I want to focus on one particular phrase in verse 6. I, I think this is really important for us uh, in understanding the kingdom of Emmanuel, understanding the kingdom of God, but also in, in how we view ourselves in the world we live in right now. And that's these words in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so, what on earth does that mean is the first question we need to examine. What does it mean the government will be on his shoulder? Uh, another question that's important for us is, has this something that's already happened? Has this happened already? Uh, And finally, why does it matter for us? So we're going to try to to get through this without having it feel like some sort of weird classroom lecture, uh, because I think there is so much 
joy and hope to be found in, in thinking through these things. Uh, that's my prayer for us. So he says the government will be on his shoulder. So the first question is, who's he? It'll be on his shoulder. Whose shoulder is the government going to be on? Well, verse 6 tells us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulder. So the government's going to be on the shoulder of this, this child, this son who will be given. So we know that's talking about, let's have a classroom participation. Jesus. This is our shot in Sunday school. The answer to every question is Jesus. That was true this time too. And so it says of him, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And all of these titles that are attributed to Jesus, to this child that that Isaiah is promising 600 years before Jesus is going to be born, these are titles for God and they are titles for kings. Um, So Mighty God is a title for God, but but even kings in that day were worshipped as gods. But all of these titles are kingly titles. So this child is coming is both God and king. And, and what should we expect from him? The first thing Isaiah tells us is this, the government will be on his shoulder. So what, what's the government? And what does it mean the government will be on his shoulder? Well, the first thing I want to say as we look at this government that's going to be on his shoulder, it has a lot more to do with monarchy than it does democracy. It has a lot more to do with being king than it does being president. The government will be on his shoulder. So Isaiah prophesies that when this child comes, sovereign authority will rest on his shoulders. Kingly, complete authority is going to rest on his shoulders. Now, now our government, this is important because our government, democracy, is actually set up intentionally the opposite of this. Right? We have the separation of powers. Uh, we saw this play out a couple weeks ago when the separation of powers was sort of sidestepped and we went, wait, that's not how we're set up. Uh, the separation of powers is how we're set up because we want to we want to keep any one person from having too much power, even any one group from having too much power. So, so democracy is set up like this. We have a government what of the people by the people. The people are the authority in the in the democracy system. It's this this setup. And of course, that's a good thing. So just because I'm saying that Jesus's kingdom is not set up like that, it's the opposite. It doesn't mean this isn't the best thing we've come up with for earthly kingdoms, right? This is, this is still a good thing for us because of sin. We need the separation of powers because we are sinful. That old saying that goes power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We need to safeguard against sin. So checks and balances in our government system are a vital thing. But, but here's the important thing. When we think about the kingdom of God, we shouldn't be putting our trust in our government. We shouldn't be putting our hope in any earthly government. There is no such thing as a governmental system that is an adequate defense against sinful hearts. Not even democracy. So if, if one person would choose, one sinful person would choose sinfully, a bunch of sinful people will vote sinfully. We don't just get to say majority rules and we're always going to come up with the best thing. It's not an adequate defense. Look at the popularity of some of our celebrities. You've got millions of people who are like, this is a worthy person to look up to. And you look at them and you go, it doesn't seem like they're a worthy person. So majority is not always right just because it's a majority. And, and so there's no safeguard against that. For humans, But I, I do want to say democracy is the best thing we've come up with. I'm not advocating we secede from the union as a church body. Uh, we won't be writing that into our constitution. Uh, it's generally a bad idea. What I am saying is don't put all of your hope there. It will fail you. You, you, you might need to hear this this morning. America will fail you. We get really wrapped up in politics. Some, some people are so passionate about politics. And, and listen, part of the point of this sermon is to say, Christians, we should have our hands in everything. We should be involved in everything for the work of the kingdom. But when we get so wrapped up in it, we genuinely start to believe if we could just get the right people on Capitol Hill, everything would go well. Everything would get better. And the truth is, not a lot changes. There's some things that are really important. Presidents have the power to, to nominate uh, Supreme Court justices who, who wield enormous power. But in truth, not a ton changes from administration to administration. We can't put all of our hope 
in that. There's no perfect system of checks and balances except one thing. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. There is only one kingdom that will last forever. Every other one, no matter how well it's run, is going to fall. The kingdom of the United States will not last forever, no matter what. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will. So when when Isaiah refers to government, he is talking about Christ's complete sovereign rule over all things. Not democracy. Not of the people, by the people. And we need to be careful that we don't read that into it when we think about the government being on his shoulder. It is the supreme rule of Jesus over all things, him and him alone. Nobody else gets a say. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. And so that government, that sovereign rule will be on his shoulders. What does that mean, on his shoulders? Well, well what it, how do we know? Let's say there was a general in the room this morning in full military dress. How would we know his rank? We look at his shoulders, right? We would see it. I think that's true. I'm looking to Jim now at this point. He's like, no, that's not true. You don't know what you're talking about. I was nervous. Everything I know is from cartoons. I don't know. But uh, no, we would look, right? They would bear the marks of their authority on their shoulders. In fact, kings, military people, they bear the marks of their authority on their shoulders. And, and, and what, what is the reason for that? Well, one of the things is this. Responsibility is a heavy thing. I was just talking to somebody this week. I don't, I don't remember who it was. I think it was Destin talking about the responsibility. Everybody wants to kind of climb the ladder at work. And then when you're the one who has to fire somebody, you realize responsibility is a heavy weight. Responsibility is a heavy thing. And people have been designed by God to carry the most weight that's possible for us to carry where? On our shoulders. Right? We're doing this work in the kitchen. We've got to pour concrete, which hopefully won't happen like this. But let's say we had to go out to the garage and carry 50-pound bags of quickcrete back in. How would we do it? Would we do it like this? Not if you want to walk, right? We put it up on our shoulder. God designed us that way to carry weight on our shoulders because our shoulders can carry a lot more weight than any other part of our body. So kings and, and soldiers bear the marks of their authority on their shoulders. I don't know if that's actually why. That's why I think it should be. That's what I'm going with. I shouldn't have even said that. You'd have been like, how does he know so much? Except you guys in the military would be like, that's not why at all. Because a guy named Ben put it in the wrong place one year and we liked it. Uh, something. <laughs> no, so the government rests on Christ's shoulders, symbolically pointing to his kingly authority over everything. Over all things. It rests there like stars rest on the shoulders of a general. But there's an even greater reason that the government is going to be on the Messiah, the Emmanuel, on his shoulders. And that is he has the unique ability to carry it. He's got the ability to carry it and no one else does. That, that old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not always true. It's mostly true. It's not true of Jesus because Jesus is not fallen. Jesus is not a sinner. There's no fear with Jesus. We don't hear the government, supreme authority, rest on his shoulders and go, oh, he might become a tyrant. We need to watch out. There's no threat of Jesus becoming a tyrant. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the one whose wisdom is higher than our wisdom. The one who's able to make plans. Not only plans for history, but plans for my life. He is the mighty God. He is powerful to do all that He desires to do. The everlasting Father, lovingly guiding, protecting, disciplining His children. He is the Prince of Peace, who makes peace between us and God, and ultimately between everything. This is the great promise of Scripture. It's the great promise of Christmas that He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That He will make peace with everything. And so, Isaiah here is referring to this in the future sense. The government will be on his shoulders. He's referring to the kingdom of God in, a, in, in that way in a future sense. It had not happened yet when Isaiah wrote these words. So the important question for us is, is that still how it is? Has it happened yet, or are we still waiting for it to happen? Are we still waiting for the government to be on Christ's shoulders? Are we still waiting for Christ to have supreme, sovereign rule over all things? 
Well, what does the New Testament tell us? So Isaiah's writing in the Old Testament before the birth of Christ. He's B.C. or B.C.E., uh, as they want to change it to, uh, which just means uh, before Christ's enthronement, maybe. And so I think what we should... Uh, common era, Christ's enthronement, before Christ, something like that. Uh, there's no getting around it. All of history is marked by Jesus Christ, by the advent of God with us. But, but what does the New Testament say? Well, you might be thinking this is some sort of trick question. Some of you are thinking, I think it says uh, it's in the present, it's happened. Some of you are thinking, no, wait, it's in the future, there's still more to come. And the truth is, it kind of says both things. That we have in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Emmanuel, something that is already present, but not fully inaugurated, not fully come, not fully uh, in action here around us. And, and so, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about this. We could spend a lot of time going through verses. But, but I would submit to you that the New Testament mostly talks about it like this. Ephesians 1, if you want to open there. There's a million verses we could go through. We don't have time to do that, but I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is how the New Testament most often will talk about the kingdom of God. Starting in verse 16, the words will be up on the screen. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come, Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he put all things under his feet. We are not still waiting for all things to be subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They have been put under his feet. Isaiah is talking 600 years before Christ is born, and he says the government will be on his shoulders. And Paul's talking after Jesus Christ has lived sinlessly, has gone to the cross, has risen victorious from the grave, and ascended into heaven. And Paul says, God put everything under his feet. We're not still waiting. Jesus is in control. He is in the driver's seat of everything. Abraham Kuyper said it like this, there's not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. So when Paul says he put all things under his feet, that really means everything. Everything. Think about this. Think about what that means. This is one of those things we don't want to let blow over our head. This is one of those well-known passages. We don't want it to just be something that gets past us and we don't really think about what it's saying. What does it mean that everything is under Christ's feet? What does it mean that he's in authority of all things? What does the word all mean? When you're kids, you're told, like, don't say all. Don't say always. Don't say never, because that's an overstatement. Those things aren't true. He says all things. What does it mean? Well, what it means is somewhere right now in Africa, there's a gazelle. While we talk this morning, there is a gazelle in Africa, and there's a lion that hasn't eaten in three days. And he sees the gazelle. All things means this. Whether that gazelle lives or whether that lion eats is up to Jesus Christ. He's in authority over that. Now, that is mind-boggling. That's just one of a trillion things going on right now that Jesus Christ is in authority over. Like, will you take your next breath? He's in authority over all things. This, is, this should blow our mind. It's something we can't wrap our minds around. It's something that, that some people want to reject and run through because they don't like the idea of God having that much power over all things because they love the government of the people by the people and not the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. But it says all things. 
So, it's finished. Jesus is seated on the throne right now. Jesus is on the throne right now. It's completely done, and we now, history is playing out as we wait for a few final skirmishes to come to an end. But the victory's won. The battle's over. Jesus Christ rules and reigns and is seated on the throne. When you sit down, it means you're done. It's one of these things in our house where, like, my wife and I kind of know, like, once we get in that bed and sit down and, like, turn something on TV, it's over. If it's 5 o'clock, it's over. If it's 10 o'clock, it's over. But either way, we sit, day's over. It's done. (laughs) Jesus Christ is seated on the throne. He's not pacing anxiously, wondering how things are going to play out. Wondering if his people will just do their job. It's done. He's seated on the throne. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now listen to this. Waiting, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is a quotation of of one of the most often quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted um, more frequently than almost anything else in the Old Testament. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Or your footstool. And so, so here's this picture. Jesus Christ raises from the dead, ascends in the clouds into heaven... And God offers him the nations and he says, sit on the throne until I've made all your enemies your footstool. That's the scene that played out at the ascension of Jesus Christ. It was his his coronation, his crowning. He's now seated on the throne until his enemies be made his footstool. There's just a few skirmishes that are be finished up, but the war's over. The government is right now on his shoulder. It's not that the government should be on his shoulder. It's not that we hope one day the government will be on his shoulder. The government is on his shoulder. Matt said it this morning. We live on this side of the resurrection. There's so many things that we talk about in the Christian church where we talk about it as if we lived on that side of the resurrection. There's so many different areas where we talk about this and, oh, we don't have much power and we might need to be a little bit afraid of of demonic things or, or whatever it is. No, we live on this side of the resurrection. Things have changed. Jesus Christ rules and reigns in victory. So our passage from Isaiah 9, verse 7, it says it like this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a staggering thing that Isaiah is saying and it's consistent with everything the Bible says about the kingdom of God. That that Jesus Christ was seated on the throne and there's only one direction this kingdom's going from here. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be what? No end. So when Isaiah wrote these words, this is so important, guys. When Isaiah wrote these words, when God spoke these words through the prophet Isaiah, he had more in mind than just giving us an awesome saying for our Christmas cards. He had bigger things in his heart when he said that. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's the increase of the exercise of the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. This will only increase. The exercise of his sovereign authority will increase from one moment to the next, from one glory to the next. It means the kingdom only increases. When this child comes, Emmanuel, God with us, when this child, when this unto us, a son will be given, when he comes, the kingdom of God will only do one thing, and that is increase. It does not shrink. This is so important for us when we look at the world and we're hearing all these voices even coming from within the church going, well, we should expect this to happen. We should expect. And and we get this impression and and we go to the movies and we see movies starring Nicolas Cage that tell us like, at the end, when the church has lost and there's only about seven people huddled in a corner, which I think is how many people went and saw that movie. Seven people (laughs) huddled in a corner. 
Then Jesus will come back and, and he'll fix everything because the church loses in history. And what the Bible says is, no, of the increase of the exercise of the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ, there will only be increase. It will only grow. It will only grow. The church is not going to lose. The church is going to win. We look at America and we go, oh, that's not the case. Things are getting worse. Things are getting worse here. Look around us. War on Christmas, man. Fifty years ago, nobody minded saying Merry Christmas. I got news for you. Holiday means holy day. Xmas, X is short for Christ. That's been in theological writing since the early church. There's no getting away from it. Christmas is about the advent of Jesus Christ. But we look at stuff like that and we go, see, it is getting worse. And how about you talk to Bill Brooks about China? Tell me if the world's getting worse or not. No, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The gospel is winning. The gospel will continue to win. The birth of Jesus Christ is a turning point that fundamentally changed everything. Jesus changes everything. History's changed. It's headed in a new direction. See, God has always been sovereign over the world, but in the accomplished mission of Christ, the exercise of his sovereignty changed. The exercise of the sovereignty of God changed in the world with the accomplished mission of Jesus Christ. God's kingdom entered into human history in a new way, in a way it hadn't before. That's why Jesus came and he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Something new had happened in the kingdom of God becoming the kingdom here. And so everything changed. For us to understand the kingdom of God, we need to understand that Jesus actually accomplished his earthly mission. There was something in the mind of God in sending Jesus Christ to earth that was not wishful thinking, it was accomplished. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, I hope it all works out. It was accomplished. Jesus accomplished his earthly mission. The message of Christmas is not a delusional message. It's not wishful thinking. The birth of Christ... In the coming of Jesus Christ, in God becoming man, in Emmanuel, God with us, God is not attempting something. He is, in fact, doing something. That's a big difference. God's not trying to do anything. God never tries to do anything. Even Yoda gets this right. Try not. There is no try. Do or do not. God doesn't try. God does. (laughs) I don't know why I ruin everything, but I do. The reason Jesus came into the world was to save it. It was decidedly not to try to save it. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Emmanuel, is nothing less than the rule and the realm of the Lord Jesus Christ made manifest in history according to his will and pleasure. So Jesus Christ is king. That's our big idea this morning. That's the big idea with Christmas, by the way. Jesus Christ is king. And Christ's authority is above all others. But it also penetrates into every realm, into every sphere of human life. There's no neutral thing in this universe. Math is not neutral. We, We have all these compartments and we go, oh, this just is science. It just is what it is. No, there's nothing neutral in the world. Why, why can we even do math? We can do math because we have a God who's unchanging, who has created a world with order. There's no neutral thing. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He really is the Lord of all things, both in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, another well-known passage, says, Therefore God has exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he starts this passage, this well-known passage with this word, therefore. And I have to say it because I heard it from my dad a million times and it's so true. Whenever there's a therefore, you should look to see what it's... Yeah. (laughs) It means... Something. Therefore, what? In the light of his humiliation. That's what Paul's been talking about. He emptied himself. In the light of his humiliation. In the light of his incarnation. God, incarnation literally means in meat. 
the God of the universe put on meat. He became a man. That's a humbling. Matt talked about this last week. Jesus humbled himself to the point that he was a baby who couldn't control his arms and legs and, and, and use the bathroom in a dignified manner. He humbled himself. He lived a sinless life. He was tempted in every way. God of the universe humbled himself to face all the temptations we face. To face a stubbed toe without yelling a curse word. He humbled himself in all ways. He humbled himself immensely in the shame of the cross. Being, being nailed up on something that God had already said was a curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He became that curse hanging naked while the worst element of society stood around and mocked him. He says, because of that, God highly exalted him. You see, there's never been a greater humbling in history, and so there will never be a greater exaltation than the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The exaltation of Christ is the central proclamation of the New Testament. The most common phrase in the early church is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. All of our blessings, all of our life flow down from the exaltation of Christ. We have been made citizens of His kingdom. He's been exalted. He rules and He reigns. And we, the church, His bride, have been brought in as sons and daughters. We're we're not just citizens who have some kind of card that proves it. We are the sons and the daughters of the exalted, ruling and reigning Jesus Christ. And Jesus, our King, is enthroned in heaven, and He's going to return from heaven and establish the new heavens and the new earth here. This is incredible promise that we have. In the meantime, though, He rules. He rules from heaven. And so this is what it means for us. American citizens. What it means for us is this. Earth has a new capital city. It's heaven. Christians are now living in the colonies of heaven, and we ought to think of ourselves that way. We're not just autonomous Americans who put all of our hope in an eagle and a flag. We are living in the colonies of heaven. And one day, Jesus Christ will establish His rule and reign, new heavens and the new earth right here. And we'll be in it, and we'll be a part of it. And we will then know Him fully as we're fully known. There's no way to capture the enormity of that promise. So the blessed hope at the end of history, this thing that we long for, this thing that we pray for, this thing that we eagerly anticipate, is something that's in the works right now. That's what the kingdom of God means. That there's something in the works right now of of that. That the Christian message is not Jesus will win. The Christian message is Jesus has won. We're not just waiting for Him to win. He's won, and we pronounce His victory. We proclaim His victory. So what does that mean for us? How should we live, then, as citizens of Emmanuel's kingdom? First is this. We should be about the work of the kingdom here. So see, I said that thing about Santa Claus, because I love it, and it makes me happy. Uh, But it does relate to the message in, in, in this. We should have the same tenacity for the kingdom of God that led Santa Claus to punch Arius in the face because he denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now that moment might have gotten away from him a little bit. (laughs) I'm not advocating face punches for heretics. But what I am saying is, a guy who, who, who lives by the credo of you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship sees no need to stand up to Arius. When we think like, hey man, this boat's going down, no point in doing a lot of work, this culture's going to hell, you don't have that kind of passion in you if you think that way. So we ought to be about the work of the kingdom of God if we understand the kingdom of God. The church is not called to wall ourselves in, hide in a corner, and just hold our breath until God zaps us out of our shoes in some sort of secret rapture. The hope of the church is not 
a secret rapture. The hope of the church is that Jesus Christ rules and reigns and has commissioned us as his sons and daughters and his ambassadors here in this land before the new heavens and the new earth comes and takes full possession of it, that that we are here about the work of the kingdom to leave a legacy for the kingdom to do the work of the great commission. So Jesus ascends into heaven and before he does, he tells his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, commanding them to obey my law. He doesn't say, listen, hide out and pray that I will zap you out of your clothes and they'll be left neatly folded on the chair. That's not the hope of the church, guys. It's not. And and we live in a country that is continually preaching this is the hope of the church. The hope of the church is God's going to zap you away from all of this. The hope of the church is Jesus Christ is on the throne. And he has given us a job to do. Until he returns in glory, uh, visibly, physically, comes to earth, and we meet him in the clouds and, and come back to earth with him to rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, where every tears wiped from our eye, when every bad thing has become untrue, when every sadness is gone, when there's nothing but joy and rejoicing in the presence of the king, until then, we do the work of the Great Commission. And that day may happen before this sermon ends, and that day may happen in a thousand years. And can I suggest to you, you're better served acting like it's going to happen in a thousand years and leaving a legacy for the kingdom. See, we've got to live in this tension. This tension that says, it could happen at any moment. I need to live passionately for God in this tension that says, it could happen for a thousand years, and I want my grandchildren's grandchildren to inherit a heritage from me for the, go- the gospel. You see, the the kingdom of God spreads. It it increases, but it doesn't increase by some sort of political power. It doesn't increase like that. It increases through the blood of the saints, through the faithful testimony of the gospel. When you look at, at, uh, somebody help me with the name of this, the the edge of the spear, is that what it's called with Nate Saint and um, Jim, uh, end of the spear, and and Jim Jim Elliott. This is the problem with on-the-spot illustrations. What ha- these guys go into this village, these missionaries, to share the gospel and to share the love of Jesus, and they get, end up getting murdered by the villagers. Now, their family did not go back and kill the villagers. This wasn't like Taken 0.5 or something like the prequel to Taken. They went in with Liam Neeson and killed them all. That's not what happened. The, faith, the family went back and faithfully ministered forgiveness and the gospel. And in that village, that godless village that murdered these saints is 100% Christian. That's how the kingdom of God advances. It's not some military takeover like the Muslims are trying to do. It's the faithful witness of God's people, the blood of the martyrs. And so we have work to do. The work of the Great Commission. And we ought to live like we want to leave a legacy. See, those missionaries could have gone to that village and said, no, things are getting worse. Because everything we see with our eyes is telling us that. But the truth was, that village is 100% Christian. Their, Their children inherited their gospel legacy. Folks, that's our call. To live like that. His kingdom expands, not through human wisdom, not through military conquest, not through political strategy, but through obedient service to Christ while proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's not Now, if, if, that, if those families had gone back to those villagers and just been super nice and fed them, they'd go, wow, these people are crazy. They went back and showed them love and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ while proclaiming, you must repent of your sins and believe the gospel. That village is 100% Christian. We need both faithful Christian service and the proclamation of the gospel, which Romans 1.16 says is the power of God for salvation. So the harvest is plentiful, and we need to keep our hands to the plow. If we really believe that the harvest is plentiful, as Jesus said, if we really believe that that the increase of his government will know no end, then we Christians ought to keep our hands to the plow. Secondly, we should be full of hope. Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. The Great Commission is not a fool's errand. 
This is how we think of it sometimes. If you really get down to it, no, it's not going to work out. The church is going to just diminish and diminish and diminish. And finally, Jesus will have to come back to clean up this mess. That makes the Great Commission into a fool's errand. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And we go, yeah, but honestly, it's not going to work. That's not true. It wasn't wishful thinking. Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus didn't tell his disciples, go disciple the nations. He told them, therefore, go disciple the nations. Therefore means because Because what? Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Because that's true, go disciple the nations. So the Great Commission has a theme, and that theme is the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It is a glorious declaration of his sovereignty. So in in the working out of the Great Commission as the church of Jesus Christ... We are not trying to do something. We are telling people about something that has been done. Earlier in Isaiah, before our passage, in in chapter 9, verse 2, leading into, into the passage we read, he says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Here's what this means, church, for us. Christ has come... He is the king. Light covers the world. And so now those who walk on this side of the accomplished mission of Jesus Christ, on this side of Emmanuel, God with us, those who continue to walk in darkness do so in a world filled with light. When the sun is up, you can manage to stay out of the sunlight, but it takes some work. You have to do it on purpose, right? You have to kind of spend your day in a basement, in in a cellar, if you want to stay out of the light when when it's the middle of of the day. And not only that, but as the day goes on, it gets harder to completely avoid sunlight. And that's the world that we're living in. The church's call is not to go around like it's pitch black midnight with these little flashlights shining the light of Jesus Christ from point to point. It's to pull back the curtains and let the glorious sun blaze. In the middle of the day, you don't need the lights on in a room with a lot of windows. That's the job of the Great Commission. It's pulling back the curtains. It's not shining a flashlight in the middle of the dark. So why do we need to hear that? Well, we need to hear that because we're prone to think that we're a part of a losing effort. Especially at Christmas time. At Christmas time, we get into this thing where we sort of like, we, get, we start getting into this whole war on Christmas deal and, oh man, this wouldn't have happened 50 years ago and we get sort of depressed. Like this whole thing is, like the church is losing. And then we start to get into this thing like the church should retreat. A massive, a massive uh, petition went around where, where they were asking pastors to sign a thing that said, we will no longer perform marriages recognized by the government of the United States of America because the government has redefined marriage. So we will only do civil ceremonies. And pastors by the hundreds were signing up for this thing because, yep, we've lost the war. And I would say that's not the gospel message. That's not the gospel of the kingdom. You don't just retreat. In a baseball game, you don't just concede in the sixth inning. I don't think we can come back, especially if you're winning. We're up five to two. We concede. You win. The church is constantly being told that. It's the sixth inning. You're up five to two. Concede. That is not the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus Christ has come. What is more, He has risen from the dead. He has made us citizens of His eternal kingdom. He has given us His Holy Spirit. We are called to work then, not in the expectation of defeat, but in the confidence of victory. Satan's defeat occurred 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. His power has been broken. His final doom is certain. Christians ought to work with the confident expectation of victory because Christ has 
1. Now, does that mean we don't experience pain and suffering and even death? Of course not. Some of you might be here thinking that. Wow, that sounds awfully optimistic. Things look rough around here. How can you even preach a sermon like that when yesterday two police officers were murdered in their car? The truth is we are still awaiting the consummation of that kingdom. There's more to come. Jesus likened it to a mustard seed. The mustard seed starts as a small seed in the ground and then it grows and it grows and it grows and eventually it's so big that birds are, are landing, nesting in its branches. So we await a final consummation when Jesus physically, visibly returns on that last day and establishes the new heavens and the new earth where the last enemy is finally defeated. The last enemy, the Bible tells us, is death. So what I'm challenging us is this. We act like the first enemy to be defeated is death. The church will shrink and shrink and shrink and Christ will finally come back. No, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Jesus Christ's kingdom only grows. But we do await that day where the last enemy will be defeated, where we, the church, will be glorified and raised anew with Christ, where our sin will finally be put to death. We eagerly await the consummation of the kingdom of God. We pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. But the kingdom of Emmanuel has arrived. The king has come. King Jesus sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father and reigns now until all his enemies are put under his feet. The king's spirit is now already living within us. The king's righteousness is already ours by faith. The king's holiness is already being produced in us. The king's joy and peace have now already been given to us. The king's victory over Satan is now already ours. The king's gifts, the gifts of the spirit are now available for ministry. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The kingdom of Emmanuel has come. The kingdom of Emmanuel will only know increase. The kingdom of God has entered into human history. So I want to close with this. We should celebrate Christmas like Christians. Don't go through this week on autopilot. Celebrate Christ in all of it. Don't sit around a Christmas tree on autopilot. Think of the king who subjected himself to be hung on a tree. Don't give gifts to, to your children on autopilot and your, and your loved ones. Think of the God who loves us and gives good gifts to us, none greater than the gift of His Son. Don't eat your feasting on autopilot. Think of the feast that is to come as we await the consummation of the kingdom of God. Celebrate like Christians, but celebrate. We of all people should be filled with joy. We of all people should be filled with hope should be filled with courage and boldness. And I might add humility to go along with those. should be filled with a passion to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, which God has graciously made us members of. Let's stand up together. Worship team, if you want to come up. just want to close our time in singing this great hymn of Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And as we sing this song together, I want us to meditate on these words as we sing them. Think about the great things we're declaring about the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ in history.